Good morning. I'd say again, welcome to this gathering of Old Oak Bible Church, but alas, uh, COVID-19 is still out there. But I will say, if you're watching this on Sunday, April 6th, happy Palm Sunday. We miss you all, and we say still this morning, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We rejoice that some 2,000 years ago, Jesus came into Jerusalem, that holy city, as a king. A king not to conquer and kill, but to be killed and to conquer sin and death. And we rejoice that that news is still true today. We pray that you're well, we are, that you're safe, that you're healthy, and that you're near the Lord today. It's, it's a blessing to be with you. We thank God for, the, for technology, just that common grace gift to still dive into his word, to still at least communicate with each other to some extent. We know that it's not the same. I've been talking to people throughout these past few weeks just of of how good it's going to be when we are back together again. We will experience just how sweet and good it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. So with that being said, we're going to start our time with prayer. Um, if you look at our Facebook page, you should we should have kind of a, a worship guide, an online bulletin. So we hope that you access that. You took time yourself to sing to the Lord, maybe pray and prepare your hearts to receive his word. And so we're going to pray briefly. Normally each week I do some kind of pastoral prayer. It's a little bit of a robust prayer, just laying before the Lord um, different requests and different needs, knowing that we can boldly approach the throne of grace because of Jesus, our great high priest. But we don't want to simulate everything that we normally do when we're together just because we can't via technology, but we'll make the most of it. Uh, so we're going to spend time today in his word. Let's open in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we are still before you, awestruck at your beauty, at your holiness, at your power, at your grace. And Lord, we say, we look at ourselves after looking at you and say, we are, we are sinful. We are weak, we are frail, we are helpless in the storm. And God, we need you. We need you for forgiveness, we need you for, for strength, we thank you that you are a refuge in the time of trouble. And God, we seek your mercy this morning. We seek your mercy as a virus uh, affects not just our country, but the entire world. We seek your mercy this morning to, to set aside time to draw near to you. Would you help us, God? Would you shape and fashion us more into the image of Christ? And God, we pray that you are at work in this time in more ways than we know. We trust that you are. And we hear of all different churches continuing to, to preach and, and proclaim your word via technology and just posting it online and sending it out to people. We pray, God, that this would be a time when those, those people who haven't heard Christ would hear him and you would save. That you would show people our, just, our helplessness on our own and the sufficiency of Christ. We want to proclaim that today. We pray for other churches this morning as well. We pray for churches like Grantwood Community Church in Parma. God, that you would be with the saints there, that you would keep them in unity, keep them in love, keep them near the cross, and God, use them. We pray for places around the world. God, as this virus spreads, Lord, we pray that you would also uh, spread your gospel. Lord, be with us this morning. 
Let the words of our hearts, the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Thank you, God, for this time. We love you. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. 100,000 to 200,000. If you've been attuned to the news this week, you've heard those numbers. That's the anticipated or projected number of deaths that COVID-19 could bring to the United States. Now, those numbers change all the time, but any way you slice this, when you hear those numbers, you just, you don't even know how to process that. 100,000 to 200,000. You can compare it to just a, even a major city. I mean, that's more than the combined populations of something like Middleburg Heights, Brook Park, and Berea, even Strongsville. You can imagine all those people. We can compare it to the deaths caused by other natural disasters, even more than that. Any way you slice it, though, this is, this is difficult to process. It's humbling. In any time, in any society, this would be difficult to process. But I think especially in our society, that number of deaths is difficult to process. Because we are a society who avoids death. Avoids death really at all costs. And this is a lot different from pretty much all societies that have gone before us. You just listen to, uh, for example, these words from the 17th century French philosopher, Blaise Pascal. He wrote a lot about death. He wrote this about the human condition. He said, imagine a number of men in chains, all under the sentence of death, some of whom are each butchered in the sight of the others. Those remaining see their own condition in that of their fellows. And looking at each other with grief and despair, await their turn. This is the image of the human condition. Of course, many of us have not ignored death. Maybe we have an occupation that we're around death all the time, being a police officer or a medical worker. Maybe just our own lives, we've experienced a lot of loss of loved ones, so we can't ignore death ourselves. But for a lot of us, though, Something like Blaise Pascal's perspective feels very, very foreign to us. It feels like a really dark way to think all the time. It may even feel like a wrong way to think all the time. Well, we ask, we just step back, we evaluate Blaise Pascal's perspective and, and ask, is, is he really wrong in his reasoning? Is he wrong? Of course not. Of course Blaise Pascal is right. We are all awaiting our turn. Every time we go to a funeral and we look at the corpse in the casket, something in us should tell us and remind us that one day that will be us as well. In others' deaths, we should remind ourselves of our own. And perhaps this virus shows us the facts that just haven't changed. I think this virus shows us that we have not dealt honestly with the reality of death. We have not dealt honestly with the reality that each one of us are going to die. I wonder, ask yourself, when is the last time you seriously thought about your own death? I'm not trying to be gloomy this morning. But honestly, ask yourself that. When is the last time you seriously thought about your own death? And more than just for a minute. More than just 
the logistical stuff that goes along with your death too, right? More than like a living will, more than a power of attorney, more than a do not resuscitate clause. When is the last time you thought seriously about your death? You know, maybe this is why Jesus seems so far off to us all the time. Maybe this is why Jesus seems irrelevant to our daily lives. Pastor Matthew McCollum, he's a pastor in Nashville, Tennessee. He wrote a book called Remember Death. It's a recent book. It really helped me this week in thinking through this topic. In his book, he writes this. What good is a blood sacrifice or justification when you're facing an uncertain job market or you're worried that you'll never find a spouse? How can I care about an immortal body when I'm ashamed of the body that I have right now? And why does Jesus always talk about eternal life? I don't need a path to glory land. I need to know how to cope with the hard things today. Our daily lives communicate that we have more pressing matters than facing death. But you know what? The reality of death, and even though we avoid it, the reality of death hangs over us in more ways than we realize. The reality of death even enslaves us in more ways than we realize. And today, what we seek to do is see how we get freed from the fear and reality of death. To do that, we're going to go to God's Word. We're going to go to the book of 1 Corinthians. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there with me. One of the things I miss about our time together is just those small little details. I always say the, this passage is on such and such a page in the Pew Bible, but alas, you have to have your own Bible this morning or look online. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 54 to 58. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Main point of the passage, main takeaway from today. The way we get freed from the fear of death is not by ignoring death, but by overcoming death. The way we get freed from the fear of death is not by ignoring death, but by overcoming death. And what does that look like? How do we do that? Well, I'm glad you asked because that's going to that's gonna be how we spend our time. So the first step to freedom from fear of death is to know your enemy. Know your enemy. You know, there's a reason why football teams in preparation for the big game watch game film of their opponents. There's a reason why political candidates to prep for a debate hire professionals to investigate their opponents. It's the same reason. Knowing your enemy is crucial to victory. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 26, a little bit before our section today, Paul, the Apostle Paul calls death an enemy. He calls it an enemy. Why? And why does Paul talk about the enemy of death in writing to the Christians in Corinth? 
Well, to answer that, it might be helpful to know what the Christians in Corinth were about and what this whole letter is about in general. If you know anything about the book of 1 Corinthians and the Christians in that ancient city of Corinth, you know that these Christians were a ragtag bunch. Paul himself says right off the bat in chapter 1 that not many of these Christians were wise or stately in the world. These were not Ivy Leaguers. These were blue-collar people. He says about the Christians in Corinth that among them was even a guy who was, who was sleeping, ongoing with his stepmother, and everybody in the church was okay with it. Chapter 6 in 1 Corinthians, Paul rattles off a list of sinful lifestyles. And then he says, you know what? Some of you used to live like this. You keep going in this letter. You read that their marriages were a mess. You keep going after that in this letter, and you read that their worship gatherings were a mess. And even here, in 1 Corinthians 15, we see that their knowledge about, and what they believed about death was also a mess. But you know what? God saved these Christians in Corinth, and he did not give up on them. He matured them. He sanctified them. He helped them grow. And he used the Apostle Paul to lead these Christians into truth. And friend, I think that's so encouraging for us. If God didn't give up on the Christians in Corinth, neither will he give up on us either. No matter how messy we are, he can pull us out of it and pull us toward himself. So that brings us up to chapter 15. In chapter 15 so far, Paul went to pains to show that the resurrection from the dead is essential to the gospel message. He writes, Jesus really did, in history, in actuality, rise from the dead. People saw him. People who back then were still around, the Christians in Corinth, could go and ask them, hey, did Jesus really get up from the dead? Did you see it? Yes, Paul himself did as well. Paul says that if Jesus isn't alive, later on in 1 Corinthians 15, that Christianity itself is pointless. Verse 14 says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Later he says that if Christ hasn't been raised, then you're still in your sins. So if Jesus really has been raised, then what does that mean for those who believe in him? Well, that's what Paul begins to talk about around verse 20 of chapter 15. He says that those who believe in Jesus will be raised like Jesus. And so then Paul gets into some practical questions about that. So how does that happen? What kind of bodies do we have? You see that in verse 35. See, the, Christian, the uh, Christians in Corinth had the right thinking of how can an earthly body be fit for a heavenly home? And Paul said, well, of course, that's why our bodies are going to change just like Jesus's did. We will get new bodies. That's what he talks about in our passage some. The, the perishable puts on the imperishable. The mystery that this is. So that's pretty much the teaching of chapter 15 at a glance. Uh, but chapter 15 as a whole, including the verses we're honing in on this morning, describe an event that's already here, but not fully here yet. Look again at verses 54 to 56. These verses, as it is right now, the current state of our world, we're still perishable. We are still mortal. Death is still here. 
Death is still over us, and we still feel its sting. Death is, death is like a toothache. It's like a toothache. You, maybe you've had one before. You have felt the pain of this toothache. You know it's real. But then after a while, it kind of goes away, and you forget about it. Until you suck in some air or you drink something cold and all of a sudden that throbbing pain comes back again. And when it sounds like this with a pandemic, that the throbbing pain of the reality of death, it, we are made aware of it once again. It's still here. So if this is our current state, that we are perishable, mortal, death is still here, one thing that's worth asking, how do we get here? How did we get here? The Bible explains why death doesn't feel natural. The Bible explains why death entered the world in the first place. And to explain that, we have to go all the way back to the beginning, to Genesis. In Genesis, we see that all things owe their existence to God. That God spoke and created everything that is made. And in detailing all that God has made, the creation account works to a pinnacle. And the pinnacle is humanity. See, all creation reflects the beauty of the creator. But humanity reflects God in a special, unique way. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 says that God created man and woman in his own image, and then he looked at all he made and didn't just call it good, he called it very good. So for as much as people want to say that humanity is just among the animals, we're just another animal creature. Each of us know deep down that we are distinct from everything else, aren't we? I mean, what creatures go to the Grand Canyon and just look at it and just take in its beauty? What other creature actually contemplates its death? Not just instinct, but thinks about it. We're distinct. Genesis 1 tells us that the dignity that we innately feel is not wrong. We're made in the image of God. So for as much as we want to try to say that death is simply natural, we know deep down that it's not. That it's wrong. Why else? Every time... We would go to the funeral of somebody that we loved and cherish. How can a person like that just simply be erased? Deep down we have that feeling. But then we keep going after Genesis. After Genesis 1, Genesis 2. It tells us of humanity's role in the world and includes God's words to humanity, telling them to enjoy the garden, to trust his goodness and follow him, and he, t- he warns humanity also that death would come if they chose to define their life on their own terms. But then we read Genesis 3, and that's exactly what humanity did. Adam and Eve, believing the lie that they would not die if they lived unto themselves, they traded an identity given to them by God for an identity that they gave themselves. And the consequences could be seen immediately after. Adam and Eve felt shame. They became separated from God. And they immediately felt death's shadow. 
Flash forward to 1 Corinthians 15, back at it. Earlier on in this chapter, Paul says that all people are now by default in Adam. Verse 22 says, in Adam all die. So Adam stands as a representative of all humanity. It's as if you could picture a huge cliff. Huge cliff, huge mountainside. And mountain climbers scaling that mountain. This is an illustration you may have heard before. I've probably used it in times past. But a series of mountain climbers scaling a cliff, all connected to one another in a single line. It's as if Adam is at the top of that line. And by going away from God, choosing himself, he falls off that mountain and then takes everybody else beneath him with him as well. In Adam, all die. I'll explain more of that later. But all of this, all this history was for the purpose of knowing our enemy. You see, to know death and to know death truly, we have to know its history. And to know death truly, as Paul continues on in 1 Corinthians, we have to know death's effects. You look again at verses 55 and 56, and you see that death has a sting, a sting. The New Testament uses that word sting in connection to a sharp stake that drives and wounds. It also uses it in connection with the stinger of a scorpion. But you know, worse than any stake, worse than any scorpion, death stings and injects the world with a lethal venom. Verse 56 says that the sting of death is sin. What does that mean? Well, it means that death is the power of sin unleashed. Like we saw briefly in death's history, death is more than just an accident. Death is a verdict. Death is a consequence. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. So that means every person dies because every person is under sin's guilty verdict. And what is it that pronounces that verdict? Well, Paul says here in this verse, it's God's law. God's law telling us how we are to live. The Bible says God's law helps us to know what sin is. It awakens in us an awareness that we have sinned against God. But the law itself is powerless to keep us from sinning against God. How we know this just from everyday normal life? I mean, when your parents told you not to stick your hand in the cookie jar, what did you want to do? All the more, stick your hand in that cookie jar. So death is the sting that comes from our sin. It's the guilty verdict sentenced by the law of God. And what makes death so crippling? What makes death sting? For one, death is inescapable. Just ask King Solomon. Second, uh, third king of Israel, King David was his dad. King Solomon, likely the richest and wisest guy to have ever lived. He got all of the pleasure, all of the sex, all of the knowledge, all of the success that he wanted. But Solomon was empty because he knew that death would take it all away. Friend, no amount of success, no amount of wealth, no amount of pleasure will take away the reality of death. Now, COVID-19 COVID-19 should open our eyes to what is powerless in the face of death. 
Now we have, we have government, we got medicine, we got doctors, all in place to preserve life and to you know, mitigate death, both of which are worthy tasks because we're made in the image of God, right? But we might be able to delay death and preserve life, but you know, none of our efforts can ultimately stop death and remove its sting. It's inescapable. But death stings also because it brings an undercurrent to all of our lives. It brings an undercurrent of purposelessness. I think this is in part what the author of Hebrews has in mind when he says that we were under the slavery of the fear of death in Hebrews 2.15. And I think, this, I think we see this too in this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. If you take just a quick preview at verse 58. You see, the Christians in Corinth were tempted to believe that their labor was in vain. Now, if they really believed that death was the end, that it just, everything stopped then, then of course they would, should be tempted to think that, that their labor was really purposeless. You think about it, the more we love and enjoy a person or an object or a status, the more it will hurt when we lose that. Just ask, how do you really enjoy anything if it ends? Now, you might say, like, that should help us be grateful for all the moments and things that we do have, just while we have them, which is true. But you know, the end, the end is still lurking. The end is still there, still in the back of our minds, no matter how much we refuse to acknowledge it. You just think about somebody on death row. Can somebody on death row really enjoy their last meal? What's the point? I mean, even if it's a gourmet meal, like the best meal they've ever had, could they really fully enjoy it? I don't know about you. It's, it's, as happy-go-lucky as you could be, as, as positive and glass half-full as you can be, you'd still have what's to come right in the back of your mind, if not at the front of it. Death brings a sense of purposelessness. That's why we avoid it, isn't it? That's why we avoid it. And deep down, we do know our enemy. Deep down, we do know that death is coming. You see, death is like male pattern baldness. You might be able to comb over reality for a time, but the longer you do that, the more obvious it is and the more power it has over you. We are a society that does not think about death. We call funeral celebrations of life. We treat corpses like they're still living bodies. We dress them up. We make them comfortable. We remove the presence of death from our homes. It's delayed. It's controlled. It's managed. It's out of sight. It's out of mind. You think even of our entertainment. Death is pervasive. It's everywhere in what we watch. But none of it is real. It's bizarre homicides. It's zombies. It's video games where you die and come back immediately. We avoid death. We've pushed it to the background. We've shoved it in the closet. But you know what? Death still affects everything we do. We've shoved it in the closet, but its stench affects everything we do.
Listen to the words of Blaise Pascal. Again, he says that many people may seem indifferent to the loss of their being, but people fear the most trifling things. They foresee and feel them. The same man who spends so many days and nights in fury and despair at losing some office or at some imaginary affront to his honor is the very one who knows that he is going to lose everything through death but feels neither anxiety nor emotion. It is a monstrous thing to see one and the same heart at once so sensitive to minor things and so strangely insensitive to the greatest. Listen, ignoring death hasn't solved anything for us. We are the society more than any others that has ignored death. And yet somehow we are the society that is the most anxious and fearful probably among the world currently. Ignoring death hasn't solved anything. The book of Ecclesiastes says that ignoring death leads to ignorance. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 14 puts it like this. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. So the main application of this just first point is to know your enemy. To face the reality of death. Not to brush past it. Listen, I, I haven't been in pastoral ministry long, but I've, I've been to my fair share of funerals. I've conducted several funerals myself. I've seen plenty of people brush past funerals. I've seen plenty of people, when they go to a funeral, all they do is crack jokes. I've seen people make plans right after a funeral to go out and get hammered. Now, I'm not saying we got to be gloomy all the time. Listen, how do you ignore this? We can't ignore this. Psalm 90 tells us, to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Friend, meditate on your funeral. Think about standing before the God who dwells in unapproachable light. Help your family think about that. Don't let your family brush past that either. And when we do that, that gives us a little bit better of a perspective on the rest of our life. That shapes our priorities a little bit more, doesn't it? Knowing our enemy, facing the reality of death, is the first step toward freedom from fear of death. But the second step gets clearer when we look at verse 57. Look with me there. Verse 57, 1 Corinthians 15. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We know our enemy. First step. Second step. We know our champion. Now, a lot of us, myself included, have a pessimistic streak inside of us. I'll admit straight up. Uh, every time I hear something positive, I just have a nagging suspicion that there's got to be a caveat. There's got to be a catch. There's got to be something that will drain the air out of the situation. I even can tell when somebody is telling me good news, just in the way that they're telling it, that there has to be a but statement coming. 
But here, it works differently. Paul starts with the bad news, and then there is glorious good news. But you see, we have to know the bad news about the enemy of death, not just because we can't ignore it, but because if we don't know the bad news about the enemy of death, the good news about Jesus won't make any sense. So verse 57 talks about the victory God won through Jesus. If we don't know the bad news about death, then we're going to look for the wrong victory. The most important battle of your life is not, that, is not whether or not your political candidate, your favorite one, wins in 2020. The most important battle in your life is not that you get financial stability. You finally get out of debt. The most important battle of your life is not that you finally lose weight. It's not that you even get healthy. All those things are important, sure. But as we've been saying, death will undo all of those quote-unquote victories. Victory over death is the true and ultimate victory that we need. I wonder if your life reflects that. Does your life reflect that priority and that perspective? Or are you too busy getting caught up in other battles? Knowing that this is the most important victory actually helps us treat the rest of life better. Not ignoring it, but maybe taking it up a little less seriously. While pursuing the right victory is the first step, it is not the only step. Because we ask not only what victory are you, are you pursuing, but also we ask, where are you looking for that victory? It's not enough just to be looking for the right victory. You have to know where to look for it. Pastor Matt Chandler, he's a well-known pastor in the Dallas area. He's probably best known, at least for one thing, uh, of his sermon on David and Goliath. Now, David and Goliath illustrates well where we should look for this victory and where we shouldn't look for this victory over death. Now, in the story of David and Goliath, you know, most people say that they are David in that story. You know, just the moral lesson of it is to be brave, to use the resources that you have, to gather your stones from the river, and that's what you use to defeat the giants of your life, and that's how you can be brave in the Lord. Well, we should be strong in the Lord. But as Matt Chandler famously says, you're not David. The Bible is not about us. So in the story of David and Goliath, we are not David. We are more like the fearful Israelites on the sidelines peeing their pants because they are too scared and can't face Goliath. And we need a champion. And this is where Jesus comes in. You know, look at verse 57 again. Look at verse 57 again, and notice what Paul does not say. Paul does not say, thanks be to us who give ourselves the victory. He says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. We need a champion who will win the victory on our behalf, who will defeat the giant of death and sin. And you know the promise of such a champion over death and sin goes as far back as death's entrance into the world. As soon as humanity fell in Genesis 3, 
and death entered the world, God promised to raise up a descendant from Eve that would crush the power of evil and sin and death. And God carried that promise for centuries and millennia. And all the Old Testament, all the people and all the places and all the events of the Old Testament just long for such a champion because time and again, just like us, the people of the Old Testament proved that we are helpless and guilty and cannot save ourselves and we need a champion. That's why God in mercy continues to carry his promise saying that the current state of affairs will not last through prophets like Isaiah and Hosea, who Paul alludes to here, God promises to swallow up death forever. And how exactly God does that becomes clear once Jesus, the Son of God, arrives on the scene. So remember that we said death is more than an accident. Death is a verdict. It's a verdict from the law of God for our sin. And so the way Jesus defeated death is not by avoiding death, but by taking death head on. Galatians 3 verse 13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So that curse that we deserved, God didn't didn't play the role of janitor and just sweep it under the rug and say, okay, guys, it's all right, don't worry about it. No, God did not compromise his justice. That curse did not go away. It was simply placed on Jesus on our behalf. So by nature, we fall under Adam. Adam is our representative who fell and death has reigned ever since. But now flash back to that same mountain climbing scene. And all of those lion and mountain climbers fall. But then there's someone in that line who holds on when everybody else fell. And those who are saved are those who grab on to him. Because Jesus lived a sinless life, yet bore the curse of sin on the cross, and then emerged victorious over the grave, his victory becomes our victory. Friends, Jesus alone, no one else has done this. No one else is even qualified to do this. Jesus can truly bear the full weight of the curse of sin because he truly is God. And Jesus can represent us truly because he truly is man. Alone is qualified. So friend, believe in Jesus Yes, I will say it. Believe in Jesus. There is no other way for victory over death. There is no other way of paying the curse of sin. There is no other way of, being, of having a righteous, sinless life credited to your account that none of us have. There is no other way of being brought back to peace with God than Jesus. And without Jesus, death will defeat us. And we will remain separated from God forever. 
And I want you to notice something else about verse 57. May have skipped over it. Something about this victory in verse 57. You see here, this victory is given. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. We do not earn it. It is given. That's a gift. How amazing. A gift. Take hold of the gift of Christ today. You know, that faith, that taking hold, you know, that faith does involve dying. That faith involves dying. It involves believing in the death of Jesus on our behalf. And Jesus says that faith in him involves dying to ourselves. So as we are alive in Christ and take hold of him, we have died to our old way of living. We have died to defining life on our own terms. We have died to amassing good works to justify ourselves before God. We have died to being our own Lord and Savior. We have died to ourselves and now we live to Christ. And now the whole of the Christian life simply is living out who God says we already are in Jesus. Because of Jesus, God says that we are his children adopted into his family. So we live out and live up to the family name like we really have died to our old ways and like we really do belong to Christ. The Bible talks about this everywhere. Ah, you're in quarantine mode probably. You know what spent some of that quarantine mode? Dwelling on this, how we die to ourselves and live to Jesus. Great chapter, Colossians 3. talks about putting off the old self, putting on the new self. Colossians 3, verse 3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Know your champion. Well, March and April. March and April is honestly my least favorite time of year. Especially this year, given what's going on. And especially in Cleveland. Because in Cleveland, as you know, we probably get all four seasons in one week, but especially in March and April. We are sick and tired of winter, and any glimmer of hope, we get excited. Anytime it's above 40 degrees and sunny out, we are outside, but then we got to deal with allergies. But then tomorrow, it's going to be 25 again. And then after that, it's going to rain for five days in a row. This time of year is such a tease. But you know what? There is something sweet about this time of year. We get to see the buds on the flowers and on the trees. And those buds are a promise that blossom is coming, that it will get warm again. So with the death and resurrection of Jesus, spring has arrived and blossom is coming. Paul calls Jesus, earlier on in this chapter, Paul calls Jesus' resurrection the first fruits. Jesus' rising from the dead is the promise that he'll bring those he saved up from the dead with him when he returns. The resurrection is the promise that blossom is coming. So no longer do we see our own death in the death of others, like Pascal's image from from the beginning of our time. No longer is it just that. Now, we see our life in the resurrection 
of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. So it's spring now, but blossom is coming. The blossom described in Revelation chapter 21. Familiar words, but so sweet. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be their mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. In verse 58, Paul tells the Christians in Corinth to live accordingly. Live accordingly. Live like joy has dawned and spring has arrived and blossom is coming. Verse 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. How do we live now that spring is here? How do we live now that Jesus has won the victory over sin and death? You see here, Paul encourages the Christians in Corinth to a determined, steady, resilient perseverance. Brothers and sisters, nothing can put Jesus back into the grave. Nothing. Nothing can undo the victory he has won. The Christians in Corinth, they had plenty of influences in their world that would undermine their confidence in the gospel. Whether it was doubt about what happens after death, or whether it was siren calls seeking to pull them back to their old ways of living. And just like them, we have plenty of influences that would undermine our confidence in our Lord and our confidence in the victory that he's won. And maybe one of those is a pandemic. So what we say this morning is do not let a pandemic make you think that Jesus' victory over the grave is any less real. In fact, let it make you think that Jesus' victory over the grave is even more real than you ever imagined. But we're going to have days, though. We are going to have days when it's all we can do just to make it. You know, the full blossom isn't here yet. It's still spring. And we shouldn't act like the full blossom is here either. You know, churches that put too much stock in success in this world and are upbeat and positive all the time will have a harder time processing a pandemic. That's why we sing about trials. We sing about suffering. We sing about our need for strength. We want to sing songs that we can sing around a hospital bed because it's still spring. Blossom isn't here yet. We're going to have days when we wonder what it's all for. We're going to have days when we, whether or not we feel, is this really worth it? If, is any of our work really making a difference? The Christians in Corinth felt the same way. They were tempted to feel the same way. We read the Bible as an ancient book. Do you think people have changed? The Word of God is living and active. Christians in Corinth were tempted to feel the same way, which is why Paul told them, in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Now, the work Paul has in mind is primarily the work of building up the church. We take this in context of the letter, 
chapter 14, verse 12, Paul tells them, strive to excel in building up the church. Investing in people, pointing them to Jesus, helping them follow Jesus, encouraging them, modeling faith in Jesus, supporting, guiding, you name it. We show up at church all the time. We read our Bibles. We pray. We talk to one another. We seek to live out the Great Commission in the world, and we might be tempted to grow weary in that. It's just the same thing after the same thing. We don't see any results. Why are we doing this? Has Jesus gotten up from the dead? Yes. Our labor will not be in vain. Our Lord will get glory. So friends, death is real. And death tempts us to think that it will undo everything we work for and everything around us. But Jesus rescues us from the purposelessness that death brings. So instead of life being one long final meal, life now becomes a series of appetizers. God's gifts are a series of appetizers that make us long for the final feast that will last forever. Now listen, mozzarella sticks are really good. I love mozzarella sticks. But you know what? A porterhouse steak is even better. We know what's here is temporary, but that's okay. Because what's permanent is the true fullness of joy. So while we're here, we can have joy. We can be content. And we can long for what's to come. Because we know deep down we are not made for this world. I think our Lord models uh, this perspective perfectly for us. It comes in John chapter 11. Uh, You may remember when uh, Jesus went to the family of his friend Lazarus who had died. And Jesus entered the place of sorrow. He didn't brush it aside. As Ecclesiastes put it, he did dwell in the house of mourners. And in that chapter comes the shortest verse in the entire Bible. Jesus wept. Now, are likely a lot of things going on in Jesus' mind during that. But I think it would be hard to say that one of those things was not the principle of Romans 12, 15, to weep with those who weep. Jesus looked at the sorrow around him and sees the effects that sin has brought onto this world. Exactly why he came. Jesus wept. He grieved. But then we read of Jesus' words to Martha, Lazarus' sister. Jesus assured Martha that her brother Lazarus would rise again. And Martha knows her Bible well. She knows the teaching of the resurrection. She knows that, you know, hey, Jesus, yes, in the last day, I know Lazarus will ride again. You know, she knows her textbook. But then, then Jesus, and Jesus clarifies. They know, no, 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 Martha, I, you know this. I want you to know this. I don't want you to just know a textbook. I want you to know me. So what does Jesus say? He says, I am the resurrection, and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. 
Theologian Don Carson says this, Jesus' concern is to divert Martha's focus from an abstract belief in what takes place on the last day to a personalized belief in him who alone can provide it. No more vague hopes. No more pat answers. Jesus is the victory over death. Jesus himself proclaims it. Lazarus can get up out of that tomb and everybody else who believes in Jesus will get up out of our tombs because Jesus himself went into the tomb on our behalf and then he emerged victorious over it. So friends, Jesus does not want us to ignore death. He does not want us to brush past grief. No, he wants us to face death, face its reality, Because when we see death with clear eyes, that is when we see Jesus with clear eyes. If we minimize the reality of death, we will end up minimizing the significance of Jesus. When we see death with clear eyes, then we see just how much we need Jesus then we see just how beautiful Jesus is. Then we see just how spectacular the work that Jesus has done for us is. And when we see Jesus for who he really is and what he has done, the purposelessness that death brings is lifted off of our backs. When we see Jesus for who he is and what he has really done, we are freed from the fear of death. Joseph Sohn was a pastor who was imprisoned and tortured uh, in communist-occupied Romania. And one of his interrogators um, in that country told him one day, he said, don't you know that I have the power to kill you? Joseph Sohn replied, don't you know that I have the power to die? This is the freedom that Christ brings. Thank the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the resurrection and the life in these days help us face death wisely, not ignoring, not escaping, but facing death, facing our limits, and then see you take hold of you. Would we cling to you, especially in this time? And we pray, Lord, that others cling to you all the same. Please do this in those who hear this week to glorify your great name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.